Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business, leadership, and politics. The 14th and G Podcast presents a Bruce Melman book review. Brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. Now, on to this week's book review. Chris Saliza, one of my favorite political reporters for a very long time, who then became a friend, and uh, very few people know this, but who really launched the Bruce Melman slide deck mania by covering a few of them early and with such Absolutely. awesome, uh, excessive gusto that you unleashed a monster. Welcome to our uh, our Wayne's World meets the press. It's great to have oh you Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I'm always excited to talk to you and especially about the book. So, and the book uh, is awesome. It's Power Players about the American presidency and sports. I love it. It's the ultimate Father's Day or Mother's Day gift. But let me let me start with you. To know you is to suspect that this idea was kicking around in your head for a while. <laughs> um, when did you first think about it? And then why did you decide, all right, it's time to make this happen? I, you know, I think it was kicking around for a really long time for a reason, which is that I've cared about sports and politics, sometimes more sports, sometimes more politics for a very long time. Ever since I came to the realization I was not going to make it into the NBA, which was circa 14 years old, so about 1990, uh, I wanted to be a sports reporter. I wound up working for George Will in college and then Charlie Cook right out of college, and that kind of put me on the path of political journalism. But I'd always sort of kept sports and sports journalism in the back of my mind and was trying to look for a way to write about both of those things, which is honestly surprisingly hard. I didn't want to write a book that had been written before, uh, you know, like an idea that had sort of already been done. You know, Don Van Natta wrote about golf and the president. So I wanted to go a little wider. And this idea of the sports that they played, the sports that they loved, the sports that they watched, and what it could tell us about who they were and how they governed, I really like that idea. Now, anyone who's written a book or thought about writing a book, the first thing you do once you, you come up with an idea is you, you make sure that no one else has had that same idea like <laughs> in the last five years, because obviously that's, you can't write that book if someone's already written a book. But no one had. There were a few academic publications. And like I said, like Don Van Natta wrote something. Rick Riley's obviously they've written about Trump and golf and cheating. But no one had written this. And so around 2020, my editor and I, who had been kind of part of this long conversation, uh, came up with the notion like, hey, let's write a book proposal up on this. They signed it. Uh, it we shopped it around. Uh, a couple houses bid. We went with 12, which is the house that published my first book too. But honestly, it was during the pandemic that I did the vast majority of all this. The research, the reporting, and the writing was all during the pandemic. I finished writing it Labor Day 2022. So that'll tell you a little something about the book publishing process and how slow it is. That was one frustration for me. As someone who writes on the internet, presses publish, and it's on the internet seconds later, writing something that was done eight, nine months ago and not seeing it until now was frustrating. It's nice to see it now. Having a physical copy of your writing, my kids, uh, uh, I think, actually now know what I do for a living because before <laughs> I'd be like, daddy writes on the internet and talks on television. That was not like something that necessarily got through to them, but an actual book does. I thought you got the balance really nicely. And, and I want to dive you. into, obviously, everybody's interested in all the stories. That's why you wrote the book. I love so many of them. But let me start with a question where I knew a lot, but not all by any stretch of the stories you told. You probably knew more going in, but usually mm -hmm. doing this, I'll bet you learned some things you wouldn't otherwise have known. What surprised you the most? What one or two facts or, or stories yeah. that you really didn't expect coming in, but you learned? Yeah. I will tell you the one that always jumps to mind when I think about this. So 
I spent the last five and a half, six years at CNN covering Donald Trump basically every single day. So I did not think that I would learn anything new about Donald Trump. Like if you're writing a book about from Eisenhower to Biden, there's plenty of presidents. I obviously know some stuff about Eisenhower, but I know a lot more now than I did when I started the book. But it's something about Trump that I learned that was totally fascinating. So uh, Donald Trump is the only recent modern president to play a college sport. Do you know what college sport he played? Baseball based upon the book, but I, did I miss that? Squash. I talked to Mark Fisher, who I used to work with at The Post, who wrote Trump Revealed, sort of, you know, to the extent there's a Trump biography out there by mainstream media outlet, it, that, that's the one I would recommend to people. Trump played squash, and I, Fisher said he wasn't great at it. He, you know, he, Trump is actually a pretty good natural athlete. He was a good baseball player. He's a very good golfer for someone his age. He's not as good a golfer as he says he is, but he's a very good golfer. But he didn't have the patience for squash because, you know, squash is a subtle game, right? It's you're, you're playing angles and that sort of thing. He would just get frustrated after a little bit of a rally and just try to bash it by his opponent. So that's one thing that I thought was fascinating. The other thing that I thought was fascinating was uh, there was a bus, obviously, that took the team to, to games. But Trump would drive his car, his sports car, to and from games, and he'd bring a couple of his friends with him. So one time they played, I think it was the Naval Academy, but don't quote me, but that's the right area for the story. And after they lost, Trump stopped in, this will date him a little bit and me a little bit. He stopped into a Montgomery Ward general store, department store, bought a whole new set of clubs, bought tees and balls, and they went out to a bluff overlooking the Chesapeake Bay and just banged balls into the water for about an hour. They got bored eventually, obviously, left the new clubs by the side of the road and went home. So it's, I, I did not know that about him. I certainly don't have the temperament to pace, play squash because I'm the exact same way. I've played it a few times. After a rally or two, I just try to hit it as hard as I can. Uh, I thought that was revealing. So that was one that jumped out to me, Bruce. The golf bluff story was supposed to end with somebody wondering if there was a marine biologist at the beach because the whale had <laughs> sucked in the, uh, the golf ball and Seinfeld <laughs> stole the story. For me, the one that I was actually maybe most surprised was that Jackie Robinson endorsed Richard Nixon. Yes. Yeah. So and, what's interesting and, is there were more black Republicans in the 50s than there are today. But it was still a little bit of an anomaly. Yeah, in 1960, first of all, in the late 50s, Robinson writes Nixon, who's the VP for, for Eisenhower, writes uh, him a letter and says, praising him about civil rights and what he's done and what he said, and et cetera. In 60, he endorses Nixon, at least in part, he likes Nixon, but at least in part because he is incredibly bothered by Kennedy's courtship of the Southern governors, who at the time were, you know, now racist racist behind the scene. In 64, Goldwater is the Republican nominee. And Robinson writes Nixon a letter and says, you got You got to come out and be a voice. Nixon kind of ignores him. Nixon wins in 68, even though Robinson calls it his Southern strategy racist. But even toward the end of Robinson's life, which is in the early 70s, he writes Nixon a letter saying, please use your voice on civil rights to try to, you know, change the debate and the conversation in this country. Nixon never responded to the letter. Robinson goes on and dies. But yeah, I, I found that totally fascinating too. And I was just thinking about it because obviously Jackie Robinson Day was just this past week. Yep. In Major League Baseball. All right. So so in telling all and you have so many great stories. Obviously you're you're chock full of them. So it's fun. We're going to hit a ton right now. But 
how to how to move the book. One way that you chose was president by president in a chronological yeah. order, which makes perfect sense. Yep. I had thought about maybe asking questions sport by sport. If anything, it feels like uh, there are kind of macro themes that tie across all of them where some of the presidents, the thing about sports is it reveals their character. For others, it was their use of everything as a tool for their politics. For some, yes. it was it kind of was about developing and maintaining a persona. For some, it was, you know, downtime or exercise. And mm-hmm. for some, for that matter, it was legit fandom. They just actually love the sports yep. like normal yep. people. I'd love to walk through that if I can. Let's do I'll it. Hit you with the president. So like Gerald yeah. Ford, you know, because I've learned a lot about Gerald Ford, I thought, and you did a nice job of explaining kind of the way he played helped you understand who he is. Yeah. So Ford was a guy who, you know, had a very rocky early life. Um, and who was looking for direction and found it in football. Now, he was also an elite level athlete. When, when people ask me, like, who, the, who is the best athlete of the president? The answer to that is Gerald Ford. He, he played offensive line uh, and de- some defense at the University of Michigan. He was an All-American. He was offered contracts by the Lions and the Bears post-college. He, he turned them down. There's no question that he was the best athlete. But yeah, I think football gave Ford a rigor and a structure that his young life had lacked. I forget who told me this is a historian that the University of Michigan fight song was almost like a, a to, was like a religious experience for Ford. Like that's how much it mattered to him. What's fascinating about it, just quickly, what's fascinating about Ford is that Ford downplays his athletic ability once he gets into politics because he doesn't want to be labeled as a dumb jock. There's a quote in the book from Lyndon Johnson. He said, you know, Gerald Ford played too many games without a helmet. You know, this idea that Ford was a dummy. And so Ford, I think, goes out of his way to really whitewash his past as as an elite level athlete solely because he doesn't want people to think he's just an athlete or just a dumb jock. Like, Like Trump and his golf prowess. Sort of the opposite of that, yes. The the that except the exact opposite. So so tell actually so the the, uh, the uh, I didn't count the number of course championships and how perhaps they came about for the uh, so, 45th president. Yeah, so this is relatively recently, like in the last three or four months, Trump claimed that he won the senior club championship at Mar-a-Lago again. He I think he said now that's the third or fourth he's won. One thing that was fascinating about it is. Trump wasn't there on the first day of the club championship. He was giving a speech. So how would you go about winning something where it's a two-day event and you're not there for one of the two days? Well, he used the score he had shot recently as a way in, and that put him at the top of the leaderboard, and then he wound up winning. So there's a, I talked to a ton of people about this. I talked to Rick Riley. I talked to Van Atta. I talked to a lot of people who have followed Trump and, and golf closely. So he has a couple methods. Let me say beforehand, and I mentioned this, I, do, I don't want this to be a rundown on Trump. Donald Trump is a really good golfer. For his age, he's probably like a six handicap. Now he says he's a scratch. It's like a lot of things with Donald Trump. He was a really good baseball player in high school. He was not the best player in New York state, as he has said. So a lot of things are mostly true, but then he has hyperbole and adds on. But, but I, I want to make clear, he's a very good golfer. He's not probably a club champion, as he says. So there were two ways that he would go about winning club championships. One, when he bought a new course, he would play the first round and declare that as the club championship, which is an interesting move. Or two, whoever the club champion was, he would find out what that guy or or woman shot 
And then if he shot below that at any point in a round, he would say he was the club champion. So that's how you get there. And again, for anyone who's, who's a member of a club, you know that's not how club championships work. Uh, so, so another one where I think uh, high character is revealed is George H.W. Bush. Yes. Where we're both sort of like, uh, it was less like Ford where he wasn't worried he'd be thought of as a dumb jock. In some ways, given that he was considered unfairly effete, a little bit of braggadocio about his athleticism would have helped H.W., but that's not how he was raised. So a lot of people ask me who was the most interesting person to write about. I always say that George Herbert Walker Bush is sort of the beating heart of, of the book for a lot of reasons. One, he's not the best athlete as president. Again, that's clearly Ford, but he's the sportiest president. He, he does horseshoes. He jumps out of planes. He plays tennis. He obviously plays baseball. Uh, fun, interesting fact. He played baseball. He was captain of the Yale baseball team. I think a lot of people know that. Light hitting, slick fielding, generally speaking, was the was the uh, assessment of him. Three weeks before Babe Ruth dies, he meets George Herbert Walker Bush. There's a, a type George Bush and, and Babe Ruth into the internet. You can see the picture. Ruth is giving his memoir to the Yale Library. Bush is sort of formally accepting them on the diamond. And the two of them meet. It's kind of like JFK, Clinton meeting JFK. Fascinating. Um, one other Bush story uh, that I love is he played in the 1983 Old Timers game. You know, it used to be at the All-Star break, they'd have an All-Star game with the, the modern players. And then an Old Timers game with guys who were like 50, 60, sometimes 70, could still play. I remember those days. Bush has like the greatest day of his life playing in it. He singles hard up the middle. And then he's in the field the next half inning and knocks down this hot shot by, I think, Orlando Cepeda, though don't hold me to it. It's in the book and makes this amazing play and the crowd goes bananas for him. I think what you said, though, Bruce, about him is so true. I actually think the lessons he learns, particularly from his mother about sports at a young age, hurt him in terms of the presidency. So his mother is very competitive. She's a really good tennis player. They play tennis all the time, but she's very into sportsmanship, very much we over me, always how did the team do, George, not how did you do? And he internalizes that. He worships his mother. He internalizes that kind of messaging of team first. And I actually think if you look at his time in office, you know, he spent so much time deferring credit to the people around him that he didn't take, again, in some ways, this is the anti-Trump. He didn't take enough credit for himself and the things that he wound up doing. It's why I think when you look at presidents whose perceptions have changed, you know, the historians rank the top 40, whatever presidents, Bush continues to move up post-presidency among those rankings, because I actually think he did more than he was willing to talk about. And I think some of that sort of unwillingness to make it about yourself comes from when he was a kid, you know, learning that it's about team, it's about we, it's not about me. And you need a little bit of me when you're the president, if you want to, if you want to be successful, particularly in the modern era. Now, you're right. I had Jeb Bush on, uh, although your book disputes something that was said. And I asked him, because I've heard him tell the story that his dad deserves credit for the phrase, you to man. Uh, oh, your, book, your book kind of takes the credit there love, a little bit away. Love that story. So yes, uh, 1961, I believe, he's at a Colt 45s game in Houston. He, according to him, he sees Rusty Staub from, from far off. And he doesn't know what comes over him, but he yells to Rusty Staub, 
you to man, according to him. Now, what's hard about that is he later t- tells Drayton McLean, the owner of the Astros, you know, th- this story. And Drayton McLean's like, that sounds fine. If you say it's true, then we'll give you credit. But there's no evidence anywhere else that he invented it. Everyone else traces it to the early 1990s where people, annoyingly, in my opinion, would yell, you demand the second a professional golfer would swing and hit the ball. But yes, it is absolutely true that George Herbert Walker Bush went to his grave insisting he invented the phrase, you demand. That's one of my underrated favorite parts of the book. All right. So, so sports is a political tool. And I thought the single best example was LBJ, who, as you point out and you write about, and I, I don't recall Caro getting into this, but like LBJ was not a baseball guy until it was politically advantageous to be That's a baseball That's exactly guy. right. So LBJ doesn't, there's 13 presidents, 12 of them either played sports or watched and followed sports in ways that influenced their lives. LBJ is the one who didn't. Everyone I talked to about LBJ, and trust me, I talked to a lot of people and I went digging hard to try to find evidence of sports in his life. Everyone said he just didn't care. His avocation and his vocation were the same. They were politics. That's what he cared about only. But to your point, so he knew how to be transactional and he knew that sports could be transactional. And he gets elected to the Senate from Texas and he knows he wants to get close to the center of power in the Senate. And at that point, it's Richard Russell, the Senate Majority Leader from Georgia. He knows two things about Russell. One, Russell is a bachelor. And two, Russell really likes to go to baseball games. Now, Russell doesn't go to that many baseball games because he's the Senate majority leader. It'd be like if Mitch McConnell went to like 50 Nats games by himself. You'd be like, that's a little weird, right? So Russell doesn't go to season opening. And Johnson, all of a sudden, is now his compatriot. He, he's going to games regularly with Russell. Now, Russell thinks this is because he and Johnson both love baseball, but Johnson could care less about baseball. In fact, John Conley, longtime Johnson A, who went on to be the governor of Texas, kids Johnson and says, oh, you're really into baseball now, aren't you? Because Conley knows there is no way that Johnson cares about baseball as much as Richard Russell. But look, I mean, the relationship, if you do read Carol, the relationship between Richard Russell and Lyndon Johnson is critical to Johnson's success in the Senate. It's critical to him being picked as VP. And then obviously he winds up as president of the United States. So baseball plays a role. But again, Lyndon Johnson has almost no interest in it except as a means to power, to quote Robert Carroll. Now, for a lot of folks, it was also a way to paint yourself as the candidate, as who you want the world to see you as. And that goes back, and I think you mentioned as far as Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt was our first sort of sporting president. Now, he was much more of an outdoorsman, hunting, fishing, wrestling, boxing. But at that time, it was, you know, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be seen as a manly man. He wanted the idea of America to be a tough, freewheeling country led by a guy like him. Fast forward to uh, his cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is in the introduction to the book. One of the things that I found fascinating is FDR gathers the heads of the most important uh, college football teams in the country, which at the time are like their Ivy League schools. It's Yale and Princeton and, and maybe a few others, which, by the way, it shows you how much times have changed. But he gathers them because at that time in the 40s, lots and lots of players are dying on the field. It's incredibly violent. It's a huge problem. But Roosevelt, FDR, believes that football is integral to training young American men for Teddy. war. Teddy. Teddy, integral to training young men for war. And as a result, 
they figure out a way to make this a little bit safer. But they both see the world in that way, that, that sports was a way to toughen you up get Americans ready for war and that they needed that seasoning in order to be ready for it, which is very different than the way that we see sports now. I would offer up, I mean, if you go back and look at what the sport young presidents played, JFK plays football, Reagan plays football, Nixon plays football, Ford obviously plays football. I mean, it, it was, it, it's generational because nowadays Biden was a wide receiver on his high school team, but didn't go beyond that. Uh, Nixon plays football, even though he's a mediocre athlete at best. That's a pretty low bar. But yeah, it, it was a thing that was done then. And I think it was both how we identified as a country, but also to get our young men ready for what they believe to be the necessities of war. And that football was the closest thing to it. Although you mentioned Nixon, I thought one of the things I didn't know but was sort of sympathetic towards was uh, Nixon, who was basically the the tackle dummy for the teams that yeah. he was on. Yeah, he he learned the lesson that in football, uh, it's not about anything other than getting back up after you're tackled. It's about it. getting right back in there and, and trying again. And I think, I mean, gosh, like it's almost too on the nose yeah. to to export that from sports to his political life. You know, I mean, from his his success as VP to you're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore to 1968. You know, what Dick Nixon did best in his political career was just keep getting up, you know, in a lot of ways. And and you're exactly right. You know, he plays in high school. He plays in college. But I mean, plays in the loosest sense. He's on the team. He's really cannon fodder uh, for, for the better players. But he always gets up. He has this will that sort of gets him up every single time. And again, it is almost too on the nose that those lessons carry over to Dick Nixon's uh, career in politics. So my gosh, do they? No, totally agree. So, so here's another one. Jack Kennedy uh, leverages sports in part to be more of a regular guy than a rich guy and to be yeah. healthier than, um, you know, disease and war. It actually left him by the time he ran for president. Some of the people you get to talk to as a result of writing these books is just like really fun. So I talked to a swing instructor and analyst at Golf Magazine. And I said, because there's YouTube video of basically every president from Eisenhower to Biden swinging a golf club somewhere, right? There, there may not be a lot of it. For, for Trump and Obama, there's much more of it. And I said, can you break down their swings for me? Like just from a technical standpoint, you don't have to tell, you know, just who had the best swing. And he said, it's not even close. JFK had the best natural swing. Although you can tell his bet, he had back problems that he was sort of compensating for his back problems, but nonetheless, he had the best swing. So JFK is probably the best natural golfer out of any of the presidents, even though Eisenhower played a lot of golf, but JFK doesn't talk about it. And it is not seen playing golf very much for exactly the reason you mentioned, Bruce, which is he doesn't want to come across. He's already got a dad who's an ambassador, who's a major donor, who people assume bought him the House and Senate seats that he has held. So he doesn't want to be associated with this sort of patrician view, because golf still at that point, despite Ike and his work to try to make golf a more popular thing in the country, which he did, it's still seen by a lot of people as an elitist sport. So Kennedy doesn't do that. What does he do instead? Well, they sub that in for touch football at Hyannisport. He's playing a game that feels more blue collar. I mean, it's touch. It's not tackle football, but feels more blue collar. And the truth of the matter is, is that Kennedy himself is, to your point, Bruce, you know, he's ill by the time that he's doing that, whether it's Addison's disease or just general breakdown. One interesting Kennedy thing, he played football his freshman year at Harvard. And he obviously he had had back problems throughout his life and they worsened as he got older. One of the historians told me that there's at least a theory out there 
that one of the reasons his back was so bad is that after a game at Harvard his freshman year, one of his family friends tackles him from behind and injures his back and it never really recovers, which I thought was just super fascinating. Yeah, no, that was sad. So, so when you think of presidents who get image, Reagan comes mm-hmm. to mind as one of the all-time 100%. greats. And yes. there's both you know sports that he may have played, but there's also his... I don't think he was the first, but he was one of the smartest at bringing winning teams to the White House. It's it is the prototypical way to understand Reagan, which is Reagan understands that perception matters and being associated with winners matters. So you're right. In the early 20th century, the Washington senators come to to the White House just for a day. It's not that they had won anything. They just come to, to sort of be around the White House. In 1963, the Boston Celtics come to the White House after they won a championship. <laughs> this is hilarious. They're just taking a regular tour. They're not really there at the invite of JFK. So Bill Russell isn't even there. They're big star. He's not even there. So in the pictures of the day, there's no Bill Russell. JFK learns that they're sort of like in the White House and like brings them in and has a thing. But it's not like a formal ceremony like we would think of. It's actually Reagan who is the father of these more formal events at the White House for winners of Super Bowls and NBA championships and NCAA championships. Not because he's a big sports fan. Again, he's not. He doesn't really care to the extent he cares about any sport. It's Notre Dame football because he played George Gipp in Newt Rock Me All-American. That, that's his connection. So he would. I talked to his body man, Jim Kuhn, and he said to the extent that he watched anything, he would watch Notre Dame football because he felt connected to it, but he was not a guy who's going to like flip on the TV and watch a national. He couldn't watch nationals back then, but you know, watch a, a baseball game for four hours, whereas Nixon was, but what Reagan understands at a sort of baseline level is being close to these people who are winners is great. Them and me appearing together is great. Them giving me the Jersey, you know, Reagan one or whatever that's great. Me shooting a basket or I found old footage. YouTube is great for this old footage of him shooting a puck into a goal. He loved all that stuff. He loved the theatrics of the White House and the presidency. And he got that. He scratched that itch a lot of the time through sports. Again, not a guy who cared about sports, but a guy who understood what sports could do for him and used it really well. Well, I loved his uh, when he threw not the first pitch, but the second pitch story. Yes. So Again, Reagan very concerned about his image. I think it's a Cubs game, though I'm not entirely sure. He's asked to throw the first pitch, and he throws it to Damon Berryhill, the Cubs catcher. This is 87, I think, 86, 87. And it's not a great pitch, but it's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's not like 50 cent. He didn't throw the ball, you know, like 50 feet to the left or something. It's it's a fine pitch. But Reagan is unhappy with it. So Reagan motions to Damon Berryhill that he wants to throw another one. And, you know, Barry Hill's like, he's like walking over to give the president the ball, move on with the game. And so then he throws another one and that's much more of a strike. So he has brought a second ball with him out there to the mound so that he could make sure that if he threw one bad one, the next one would be better. Again, Reagan and perception, because he didn't want the only thing to come out of that game. Ronald Reagan threw a bad pitch. So he gave him a good pitch. So let me ask you, by the way, on the teams being invited to the White House, you know, Reagan was real the father of it. And obviously we saw it continue and it grew. And particularly in the Mm -hmm. Obama era, everybody wanted to be there. And they were, you know, men's teams and women's teams. And we've seen everything get politicized. And particularly in the Trump era, we started having teams and stars refusing to come. 
Uh, it's a little bit different with Jill Biden, who made the gracious mistake of suggesting yes. that maybe both teams should come. Yes, but it right. got read as a racial thing that I suspect the first lady didn't intend. Do you think we've crossed the Rubicon of uh, teams coming only if they're comfortable with the politics of the commander in chief? Or do you think we're going to renormalize and say you win, you win, you get invited. It's the president. You don't worry about whether you agree with them on all the issues and the activist groups let the athletes be victors, not uh, activists. So it's interesting because I think we have a tendency to just look at that in through the lens of Trump, because it is true. In 2017, the Golden State Warriors didn't come after winning the championship. Steph Curry first said he didn't want to come. Then Trump said, you're not invited. Then the Warriors said, we're not coming. They went to African-American History Museum with a group of kids when they did come through Washington in 2018. That same year, 2018, not all the Philadelphia Eagles were going to come. Uh, and so Trump disinvites them as well. That said, there's somewhat of a history. It's in the book. I don't want to go into too much detail, but Tim Thomas jumps to mind, the goalie of the Bruins. He he didn't come to the White House when the Bruins won. won. So it's not, it didn't start with Trump. Whole teams boycotting is more Trump's era. But there have throughout history been, and again, we're talking about a history of 40 odd years. It's really Reagan forward. This is not like, 18, you know, William Henry Harrison inviting the, the New York Giants to come, right? Knickerbockers. Like we're talking about, right, Knickerbockers. We're, we're talking about recent history. But there is a history of athletes here and there protesting. I mean, one of the things, Larry Bird didn't come to the, to the uh, White House when they won in the 80s under Reagan. I don't think because he had an issue with Reagan, but Bird said, if he wants to see me, he knows where to find me. Like, talk <laughs> about a diva move. Imagine LeBron James saying, uh, you know, uh, to Joe Biden, I'm not coming. If, if he wants to see me, he knows where to find me. So there were isolated incidents. I think we're probably in a place where you're going to see it stay politicized for the foreseeable future. I, I'm with you. I think Joe Biden was trying to be gracious, ultimately. She said it was a great game. We'd love to have you both there. Obviously, that's not how sports work. Somebody wins and somebody loses. I think that's why people like it. It became a racial thing. But I do think, I just think we see so much through a political and polarized lens now that it's hard for me to imagine we won't see that. One thing that I really wanted to do in the book, and you've read it, Ken, Ken, Bruce, and I hope you can appreciate this. Yes, the book is about presidents and sports. What I really didn't want the book to be about, though, was politics. There's not a lot of politics in the book. I don't get into what Donald Trump did with the with the Muslim ban or building the wall. I don't get into George Bush and mission accomplished. I don't get to Barack Obama and, you know, if you like your insurance, you can keep it. I try to keep all of that out because there's plenty of books that cover that ground. I wanted to say, let's look at it through this narrow lens and through sports and what that helps us understand about these people, good and bad. But I didn't want it to get political because I feel like, as you well know, there's so much political stuff out in the world. Yep. So let me ask you about Bill Clinton jogging in McDonald's. And something that even after reading your book, I can't quite decide is I feel like the reason it humanized him was Phil Hartman. And yes. then he just went there because he was hungry. But do you think he was doing that, sold him in a way that helped him as a Democrat appeal to the kind of the regular guy, Southerner? Let me give you an alternate take. So Bill Clinton in college starts running. <clears throat> and there's this famous quote that's in the book where he tells a friend of his, if I run for 30 minutes, I can eat whatever I want. Now, I think that that revealing about how Bill Clinton saw the world, 
I can cancel out the bad stuff I do if I do enough good stuff. I actually don't think it was a political ploy for him in terms of where he went, but I do want to tell that story because it is hilarious. So when he's governor, he runs regularly. His favorite ending spot for his run is, in fact, a McDonald's in Little Rock that has a plaque to this day commemorating the fact that Bill Clinton stopped here after his runs. Obviously, that's been made iconic by Phil Hartman walking around and he's eating everybody's sandwiches and all that sort of stuff. But I think, look, see it through the Monica Lewinsky scandal, you see it through all of this. Bill Clinton is of divided mind. There was good Bill and there was bad Bill. Whether it was about food, whether it was about his sexual appetites, whether it was about whatever, he had this view that he could counteract bad Bill by doing good Bill things. And I think running is right in that wheelhouse. He literally explains that that's why he took up running. So so let me ask you, I'll go to a Trump one, but to your point, this isn't about dunking on or or otherwise, professional wrestling. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that there's so much about wrestling, kind of the Manichaean good versus evil, good guys and bad guys. It's larger than life. It also is a really smart thing if you're a billionaire, but you're trying to appeal to sort of the blue collar (laughs) What began his interest in, and do you think it was that he enjoyed it or do you think it was that he saw the political and kind of cultural benefits? Well, I'll add one other interesting thing, just comparison between Donald Trump's politics and world professional wrestling is the blurring of the line between fake and real too. You know, what's reality TV and what's fiction? And I've spent a lot of time thinking about professional wrestling and Donald Trump more time than I probably should. You have to look at his friendship with Vince McMahon. For all of my years growing up in Connecticut, WWE is based in Stanford. McMahon was the face and the head of it. Trump doesn't have a lot of close friends. Uh, Again, not a criticism. A lot of these presidents don't have a lot of close friends. But Trump has his family is sort of his inner circle. He doesn't have a lot of friends that are close. Vince McMahon is someone who he has been close to for a very long time. I think he looks to him as a peer. Uh, which Donald Trump doesn't look at a lot of people as peers, candidly. I think he respects him. And I do think that he looks at how McMahon influenced, persuaded, cajoled people through that exactly what I want to use your word because I think it's exactly right. The Manichaean view of the world. There are good people and there are bad people. And, and defining who the bad people who you have to boo who hate you is almost as important, if not more important than figuring out the good people. So I always say to people, if you want to understand Donald Trump, go watch either a wrestling event live or on television. The production values, the good versus evil, the blurring of those lines between what's real and what's fake, all that stuff plays into how he had positioned himself as a candidate, how he talks to the public. I always think of Don, he's like cutting a promo like 75% of the time on True Social, right? He's like screaming, out, Ron DeSantis did this today. I mean, it's literally like right out of the like Roddy Piper attacking the Iron Sheik or Hulk Hogan from the 1980. It, it's that same mentality. There's just so much there. It's such a rich text. That's a piece that I wish I had e- done even more on. It's your next book, book because man. I, think there's, I do think there's a lot there. Well, and of course, Hogan went from like the ultimate villain to the ultimate hero, which is, uh, I suppose. It started as the ultimate hero, went to the ultimate villain, and then became the ultimate hero again. Donald Trump learned one thing, I think, or uh, many things, but one important thing from wrestling, which is being the heel, being the bad guy is not always that bad. Lots of people root for the heel. Lots of people cheer for the heel. The heel says stuff that the face, the good guy, can't always say, but happens to be true. And so he takes tons of lessons from that, I think, and it's instructive to him. 
a lot of presidents get criticized for whatever time they spend. Yet at the same time, you know, anybody go be president. It's the hardest job on the planet. It's unlimited yes. pressure. You need to exercise. And if if your exercise or your clearing your head is on is on a, a golf course, that should be fine. We saw it with Eisenhower. We saw it with Obama, who would generally yep. take staffers who could play, yep. as opposed to, you know, what many of us might say is, well, what a good walk spoiled. Why don't you take business people? Why don't you conduct right? Take you know, Boehner. Um, yeah, or, right, or, right. or foreign leaders. Has, yep. Did you find most presidents ultimately are, are using golf as that chance to just get away from the, the high pressure? Or was anybody leveraging it with great frequency to do business? I would say everyone from Eisenhower to Biden golfed. They golf in different ways. No one golfs more than Eisenhower. Trump and, and uh, Obama golf a lot. Bill Clinton golfs a fair amount. Biden doesn't golf all that much, although he's quite good at golf, but, but he doesn't golf all that much. But there's a through line through that. And so I asked everybody that I talked to, like, why golf out of all, all the sports, right? It still does have a little bit of an elitist vibe to it. You know, it's not like not everybody's got $1,000, probably more to pay for clubs. Not everybody's a member of a country club. But by the way, one interesting thing, just a side note. Obama only played public clubs in his uh, first term, but once he got reelected, he only played private clubs. So, dry, dry <laughs> clubs. but what they said to me almost to a person was this, the reason that golf was so appealing and is so appealing to presidents is because being president is like being in a gilded cage. You can't do anything that even remotely resembles being normal. You can't run outside. George W. Bush famously bridled that, you know, he wanted to go for runs in Washington. After Bill Clinton did that, they shut that down. He had to run around the track at the White House. You can't really go to dinner. You can't really go anywhere. And so even though, of course, the Secret Service are there, it's not like they leave you alone for six hours, but they're on the fringes of the fairway. They might be out of eye shot. You can be out there in nature and feel like you're semi-normal for, I guess, depending on how good you are at golf, four to seven hours. <laughs> um, and that and that is what really, really appealed to a lot of these guys. So I think for the most part, that's why they play golf. You know, Trump famously said he was very critical of Obama playing golf. And he famously said, when I play golf, it's going to be with world leaders and I'm going to be accomplishing things. I think if you look at the record of Donald Trump and when he played golf, he, he yes, he did play occasionally with world leaders. He did occasionally play with congressional leaders. But for the most part, he played with his buddies and like famous, famous golfers and people he liked. And I think it was for that reason, because it makes you feel as normal as you can feel as president. I think that makes a lot of sense. One correction, I suspect. I'm betting if you're the president, they clear the course for you. You don't take yeah. four to seven hours. You yeah, got you're Secret right. Service guys <laughs> spotting your balls. Nobody's going to say peep if you drop a mulligan. All the presidents and golfing. Who would be the most fun to play with and whose so, scores are the most questionable? The, the scores are most questionable. I think most people would jump to Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. But I actually have a different one. This, I love this. So Lyndon Johnson, he wasn't super sporty. He didn't play that much of anything, but he did play golf on occasion. Johnson's thing would be, he'd hit a shot. And if he didn't like it, he'd hit another shot, same spot. And if he didn't like that one, he'd hit another shot, same spot. And if he didn't like that one, guess what? Another shot, same spot. So he'd hit four or five, six golf balls and totally uncaring about the people around him, his, his playing partners. You know, I think it's so indicative of the idea of Johnson sort of making up his rules as he goes. He, he did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. Who would be the most fun to play with? Probably Ike. 
because I think, first of all, I might be able to get on Augusta with Ike because he was a member. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not getting on Augusta any other way. And I think he loved the game. You know, I think he he genuinely loved the game. I mean, from the time he got up in the morning, he would carry a, a club with him. He had a putting green installed outside the White House. So I think that that love of the game would be fun and infectious. Plus, for as much as he played, he was never terribly good. I mean, he was fine, but he was never a great golfer by any means, which would make me feel a little better as I hit it into the woods and sprayed it all over the place. All right, last two <laughs> questions. So first, sure. um, you, you mentioned Teddy Roosevelt, but you really start with Eisenhower. Did you attempt to look earlier, but there weren't sports? Yes. I mean, Lincoln was 6'4", six, 6'8", six, with the hat. I think he might have been yep. a post-up kind of player. Did um, you go looking, or did you just say, I'm going to do modern only? Good wrestler, by the way, Lincoln. <laughs> so in my initial plan, I had a chapter, Founding Fathers. I scrapped it just for time, honestly, because I was trying to get done. And my favorite one out of all of them is actually not Lincoln. It's George Washington. Because George Washington, for the t- he's like 6'1", six, 6'2", six, which at the time is like being seven feet tall. Everybody's like five foot. Everyone's like James Madison, like 5'4". There are these great stories that I wish I had gotten in the book somehow about whether they're apocryphal or not. I'll leave you to debate. But like, Washington, like bending an iron bar with his bare hands, Washington throwing a ball over the Potomac River. <laughs> there's, there's all these wonderful stories about Washington and his athletic prowess. Uh, he was much larger than people at the time. But I, so the answer is I wanted to do it. I ran out of time doing it. All right. Very last question, Chris. You've been okay. totally generous with your time. Book's awesome. With the caveat, you won't be hurt playing it. Tell me what sport you'd play based upon which president you'd want as a teammate? Okay, great question. What sport I would play based on what president I would want as a teammate? I, I, I'm going to default. The only sport I was ever any good at is basketball because I'm tall. I have a short television presence, but I'm actually tall in real life. I'm like six, tall-ish. I'm 6'3". Um, I would play basketball with Obama, and here's why. Because Obama only played with people who were outstanding. So for his 49th birthday, he had LeBron James, Chris Paul, Kobe Bryant, Joakim Noah, Shane Battier, and a bunch of other NBA guys that he played with. So I would want the opportunity to play with them. So I would glom on to Obama solely for the chance to play with those guys. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Congratulations on getting this awesome book out. If anybody likes politics or anybody likes sports, it's a fun and fast read. I'm grateful that you spent your time with us today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.